What book are we in again? Yeah, James, that's it. James, it's been a couple of weeks. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 tonight. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Then we're going to take chapter 5 the next three weeks and we'll be done our study of the book of James. I just want us to sort of get the context tonight of where James is headed. I just want to read this passage of Scripture to you tonight. If you want to follow along in your Bible. And then I just want to go down and, as I normally do, just sort of tear it apart, if you will, and just look at some of the things that the Lord has laid on my heart from this passage. James writes, James 4.13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into this or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. You ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows what is is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. James starts out this passage by using the words, come now. It is an invitation to you and I to really reason it out and think about what James is saying. In fact, God is very clear in his word that when we approach God and when we come to God, when we're searching for God, God doesn't want us to shut our brains off. God wants us to engage our minds fully. And try to understand what he is saying to us. And to reason through it. And to think about. In fact, it reminds me of an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah. Where the prophet Isaiah basically says, Come now, let's consider your options, says the Lord. Though your sins have stained you like the color red, you can become white like snow. Though they are easy to see as the color scarlet, you can become white like snow wool. Jesus even said, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so God wants us to use our minds. He wants us to think and reason it out. God has given us plenty of evidence for what he is saying to us, even in this passage, as we're going to see tonight. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.13, get your minds ready for action. I love that. In the old King James version or translation of the Bible, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. I didn't know my mind had loins. It's actually, though, a very cool picture. Because, remember, in Bible times, they wore robes. And if they were to get ready for action, if they were to go into battle, if they were to work, they needed to pull up their robe and tie it up so that they had freedom of movement, movement, so they could engage and and get into something. Well, Peter, by using that concept in the original language, girding up the loins of our mind, get your mind ready for action, get it uncluttered, get it focused. And so again, he's going back to the importance of us using our minds and trying to to understand what the Lord is saying to us, and obviously, too, asking the Holy Spirit, 
who is guiding us into all truth and who is our ultimate teacher to, to help us to grasp what God is saying. There are many people erroneously who think that we as Christians just sort of shut off our brains and just mindlessly follow God. No, that's not biblical. That's not even how God wants it to be. God wants us to use our minds. And James starts off with that same concept when he says, come now. Then notice in verse 13, he says, today or tomorrow, we will go into this or that town and spend a year there and do business. Now, Hang that out there and then drop down to verse 15 because he sort of has a parenthesis there and he's not really at that moment, he's sort of like going off on something else. But I want to follow through with that thought when if you take the word business and now go down to verse 15, he completes his thought by saying you ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. Some people have looked at this passage and concluded that God doesn't want us to plan for anything, schedule anything, and all of that. And that's not what James is teaching here. In fact, the whole message of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is God wants us to plan. God wants us to prepare. God wants us to schedule as long as, and this is what James is saying, as long as our plans and our schedules include God. You see, James is simply saying that the the thing that's wrong here is when people make all these plans and all these schedules and God is not a part of it in any way. He wasn't consulted before they made their plans and schedules. He isn't consulted through their plans and schedules. He isn't brought into account for their plans and schedules. And James is simply saying that is not the way to live. James here is simply reminding us that a life that includes God is superior to a life that excludes God. And that we should get to the point as we grow in our faith and grow in our Christian maturity where everything in our lives includes God. Every area of our life includes God. We just bring God into everything. That's why a house... With all these different rooms is a great picture of our lives with God. Because when we accept Christ as our Savior, we get all of God. We don't get half of God and then get the other half on some installment plan. The Bible clearly teaches we are complete in Christ the moment we accept Christ. And we get all of God, but God doesn't necessarily, when we become a Christian, get all of us. And that's what the Bible calls by using this big fancy long-term sanctification. That's really what the, the Christian life is all about, is when we, over time, begin to release and surrender more of the rooms in our life to God, more of the closets in our life to God, more of the areas in our life to God. God wants to be a part of it all. And yet many times, even as Christ followers, we hold certain rooms and places back from God. And God wants to be a part of all of it. And James is simply reminding us that if we include God in everything, that is a superior life. That will be a life that Jesus talked about when he says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, life in the Bible is not defined as a quantity of number of years that I'm breathing and existing on earth. Life is defined as a quality of life. Life on a higher plane. 
That, that's why eternal life starts the moment I accept Christ and I don't wait till I get to heaven to begin to enjoy eternal life because it's a quality of life that God wants me as his child to begin to enjoy right now on earth. That kind of life. So notice then he goes on in verse 16 to say, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. You see, it really comes down to a life independent of God or dependent upon God. And God wants me to realize that I need to be dependent on Him and that I need Him all the time. Whether I think I do or not, I'm dependent on God. And as I grow and as I mature, hopefully I will learn more and more how much I am dependent on Him. In fact, I can't even be obedient to God without being dependent on God because all of the principles in God's word cannot be, uh, we can't do them without being dependent upon his power to do them. So discipleship is not so much a matter of obedience, it's about dependence. And when you think about the devil, our arch enemy spiritually, that's what caused his fall. If you study the fall of Lucifer, you realize that there came this point where he wanted to be independent of God. It's not that he didn't know who God was. He simply said, God, thank you very much. I want to do it my way from here on out. I, I, I want to be in charge, you see. And that's why ever since Lucifer fell and became Satan, the devil, he's been trying to urge every human being who's ever been born to live independently of God because that's following Satan's example rather than God's example. In fact, even Jesus modeled for us when he came to earth as the son of God that he laid aside the independent use of his godly attributes and everything he did was under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God or as he was communing with God the Father in prayer and he was modeling for us that even though he was God, he would not live independently of God the Spirit and God the Father while he was here on earth. And he was trying to get us to do the same thing. I mean, that's what he kept trying to get his disciples to do. Disciples, you got to pray. I'm I'm going over here and and I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time with my Father in prayer. No, Jesus, we, we got other things to do like sleep, you know. And Jesus was like, it's really important that you pray. You know, pray that you enter not into temptation. And Jesus knew, especially the night before he was, that he was betrayed, what was going to happen. Jesus knew they needed spiritual strength. Jesus comes back three times and tries to encourage them. Spend time with your father in heaven. You know, pray. And they're like, no, we need sleep more. So Jesus even modeled how important it was to be dependent on God while he was here on earth. The other thing verse 16, I think, is reminding us of, is that God is so faithful that it often goes unnoticed and unappreciated. And we begin to live life as if we don't really need God. And yet, part of that is because we begin, because God is so faithful, and he cannot be unfaithful or else he would cease to be God, that he is so faithful and has always been so faithful that we just take his faithfulness for granted. He throws the sun up in the sky every day and nobody seems to mind. You know, obviously we would all cry out on earth if the sun didn't come up every day. And, uh, you know, if he kept everything and the Bible teaches that God sustains his universe. If something got out of kilter in the universe just a little bit, 
We'd all either freeze or be fried, you know. It's all because of the faithfulness of God. And, and God is so faithful all the time that we begin to take it for granted. Because, let's face it, we take the faithfulness of others for granted. And maybe they take us for granted. And that we're just there all the time, that steady rock, just doing what we do. And, and pretty soon people get used to us just sort of being there. And, and we even get to the point, like, you know what, I think they're taking me for granted. I don't think they're appreciating me. Because I'm just that steady Go into work every day, do my job, do it well. That, you know, wow. Think about God. Think about the billions of people in human history who've taken God's faithfulness for granted because he's been there. I mean, the Bible teaches that we couldn't breathe without God's help. If, if God wanted to cut off my air right now and, and, and stop my heart from beating, it, it, it only keeps beating, I only keep breathing, Because of God's faithfulness. And so the Bible here is reminding us, let's not not become so proud that we think that somehow we don't need God or that God isn't behind the strength that we have and all of that to even be able to exist on a daily basis. The other point that I failed to mention there in verse 15 is he uses that phrase, if the Lord is willing, and please don't run to far with that as far as like you know because a lot of Christians are always like well how do I determine the Lord's will really let's keep this simple the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8 14 those who are the children of God are led by the spirit of God And, and we could tell you a million different ways God leads you as his child but the bottom line is he leads you through his spirit and obviously his spirit takes the word of God and takes the counsel of others and all of that. But the bottom line is he leads us by his spirit. That's why the Bible in the New Testament many times says walk in the spirit and live by the spirit because we've got to learn how to be led by the spirit of God. Then you'll notice as we go back up now and pick up his sort of parenthetical thought at the end of verse 13, he was not only talking about the superiority of a life that includes God in everything. But then now he's coming down to the point of it all. And the point of it all for this person that he's describing in verse 13 is that the bottom line financially is the point of it all for this person in James chapter 4. That their whole life is focused on just making a profit. Or we would say just making sure I stay in the black and I don't get in the red and that that, you know, the decimal point is just in the right place. That that's what it's all about. That, that's what the focus of life is all about, is just making a profit. Well, listen to these verses throughout the Bible. Jesus said, What benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his life? What can a person give in exchange for his life? Isn't there more to living than just making a living and making a profit? And then Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For we were bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore glorify God with your body. See, according to the word of God, 
My life as a Christ follower should be lived not for making a profit. That, that's not what my life should be about. It should be to glorify God in everything that I do. In fact, to tie this all together, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur, and the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all these things if you throw yourself to the ground and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Satan, you can't offer me anything of this earth. That's more important than glorifying God. In fact, keep your finger there in James chapter 4 and go back to another story that Jesus gives us in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12. This sort of ties some of these different thoughts that James is giving to us together in James chapter 12 beginning in verse well, you know what? Let's begin in verse 13. We'll go back a little bit. James, or excuse me, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator between you two? Can I just, it's not that Jesus couldn't have done it. It's that Jesus thought, There is no way I'm getting involved in this family inheritance who gets who thing. Because you, you guys, you have it all wrong. That's not what you should be concerned about. In fact, notice in verse 15, he says to all of them who are there, watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life should not be reduced to living my life to make a profit. James says, and about planning my life is that's what the, it's all just about the financial bottom line of my life. And then he told him a parable, verse 16. The land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll big, I'll build storage sheds like we see all around us today. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, celebrate. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded back from you. And who's going to get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich toward God. See, Jesus even said, here's a, here's a guy who's so concentrating that all his life is reduced to is making a profit, getting more things, finding room to store more things. And then he ends up dying that night. And Jesus even makes a good point. And who, where are all those things going to go? And what are those things going to get you? Is that really what life is all about, is that really what we're living for? That's why when you go back to James chapter 4, you'll notice that he ties this in with what is our life like? What is our life like? Because at the beginning of verse 14, notice he reminds us about our limitations as human beings. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know 
about tomorrow. None of us in this room can presume that we're going to be alive tomorrow. So shouldn't we include God in our life and in our plans and in our schedules? Because isn't it far superior and more important that we live for God and make sure that God is at the very center of everything so that if I do go to be with Jesus tomorrow, my life is where it should be. We all know examples, folks, of people who passed from life way before their time, as we like to say it. I remember the story of someone that my father was connected with only because he had a detached retina. We lived, I grew up back on the East Coast near Baltimore, Maryland. And so we went to the Wilmer Eye Clinic, which is part of Johns Hopkins Hospital. And my father got the same surgeon to reattach his retina that worked on like Sugar Ray Leonard, the the boxer, when he had his detached retina. He was the world's, at least at that time, leading eye surgeon. People flew all over the world, from all over the world, to come to the Wilmer Eye Clinic in Baltimore to get their eyes, uh, you know, surgically repaired by this surgeon. He was in his early 40s. He... I mean, obviously, leading eye surgeon in the world, he was making more money than you and I probably could ever imagine. And yet the sad thing is, and he would tell you this out of his own mouth before he died, he had no time to enjoy it, or he didn't make any time to enjoy it. And then in his early 40s, he dropped dead of a massive heart attack. World's leading eye surgeon. My wife and I, We had dear friends back in Maryland. They were very dear friends of ours. Uh, They had their own business. They were very successful. And they loved the Lord. Nothing wrong there. But just talk about the suddenness of it. She got what was back then called Lou Gehrig's disease. And she died in her early 40s. I think I'm more sensitive to this too. Because my own father, 58 years old, died of pancreatic cancer 17 years ago. I'm glad that my father didn't live waiting somehow to put God first in his life and wait till retirement to live or wait to to do this or that. He tried to live, as James says, including God in everything every day and, and living life to the fullest every day because life was a gift. That's why you'll notice that we really need to ponder this question that James gives to us in verse 14 when he says, what is your life like? We need to think about that. What is our life like? I never thought I would use an illustration out of Alice in Wonderland, but here it comes. Alice gets to Wonderland and she asks the cat which way she should go. And the cat responds, it depends on where you are going. And she said it didn't matter where she was going, to which the cat said, then it really doesn't matter which way you go. Alice illustrates many people today who are in constant motion, but with no direction in their life. I mean, they're going this way and that way, and they're moving. And if you looked at their life, man, they never stop, but they never also really get anywhere. 
And when you begin to think about life and what my life means and what I want to get out of life and what am I living for and when all is said and done, what do I want out of life? These are questions that we really should ponder every once in a while. And that's what James is reminding us of. What's my life like? What am I living for? When all is said and done, what do I want out of life? You know, for me, it was sort of a sobering thing. When I studied Scripture one time, concentrating on this, it was very interesting to me that Scripture often summarizes a person's life in one verse or one sentence. Think about that. Scripture, God, often summarizes a whole person's life in one verse or one sentence, because I think God's on to something here that when you really take everything into account about how we're living and what our life is like, you pretty much can say, this person's known for this, this person's known for that. That's, that's pretty much what they're known for. That, that's what's connected with them. It's like, it's like Hebrews 11. You, you go through the hall of fame of faith and Abraham was known for this and Noah was known for this. I mean, we even do that in our own minds. We begin to pick out Bible characters and we can usually associate, well, this I'm associating with them. Some good, some bad, but we can usually reduce a person's life to one sentence. How will God or others summarize my life when I'm gone? And the cool thing is, if I don't like what my life is like, through Christ, I can always change it. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things can become new. I can change. Through Christ, if I don't like the trajectory of my life, Jesus Christ is like a rocket booster that can change the whole trajectory of my life. He can take me in a whole different direction. He can make my life look totally different than it does now. I just have to surrender. I I just have to say, Jesus, you, you take over. So it's never a question of if I don't like where my life is like, if I don't like where my life is headed, if I don't like what I think my life is going to be summed up like then through Jesus, guess what? We can always change that. I mean, think about even salvation. Hopefully for all of us in this room, if somebody was to write the summary of our life before we came to Christ, then after we came to Christ, I think the story would be a little bit different. Sort of like the cardboard testimonies a little while ago. Here's Here's the way I was living before Christ, and now here's the way I'm living now. Totally different. That's what Jesus can do. And he can even do it for you and I as Christians. So, again, if you don't like where your life is like, what it's like right now, through Christ, you can change it. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. Remember that. What is our life like? In fact, I know for me, I've been pondering the fact that I want to leave lasting footprints. I I don't want to just have a life that just, I lived my life and that was it. I want to leave a legacy. 
I want people after me, after I'm gone, after I'm dead, to still be impacted by my life and by the way I live. And that's biblical. In fact, the Bible says it can happen. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, it says that Abel, though he is dead, is still speaking. Abel is dead, but he still speaks. He still inspires. See, I, I remind people of this at every funeral service I've ever done. That the dead are physically dead, but they're not done, hopefully, motivating and inspiring us to live our lives maybe a little bit differently. In fact, I said, one of the ways that you can honor your loved one or friend who's died is by leaving this funeral service today and taking from this service the idea that, you know what? I'm going to live life a little bit differently from here on out. I'm going to I'm going to change some things. And, and I can always look back and, and it could always be because well, I went to that funeral service and was reminded of my own mortality and, and how brief life is and how fragile life is. And so I'm going to change the way I live. And maybe our whole life then changes its trajectory from that point on. I hope you want to leave footprints behind you as well. Keep your finger in James and go over to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 14. I want you to see this. I think it'll be an encouragement to you. Revelation 14, verse 13. Now, specifically in this context, he's talking about the saints who are going to come out of the great tribulation, but the principle is the same. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord from this moment on, yes, says the spirit, so they can rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. Don't miss that. That's leaving lasting footprints, living in such a way that our deeds follow us. And people can walk in the footprints that we have left as we followed Christ in our life and lived a life of faith. That's what, again, Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. That the author is basically sharing with us all these people of faith and basically telling us, follow in the footsteps of faith that they have walked and that they have left. And God wants to encourage all of us to live in such a way and to attack life in such a way that I don't want to just bounce through life like Alice in Wonderland. I don't want to just have no direction in my life and always be in constant motion but never really getting anywhere. I want to think about my life. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to find my identity in Christ. And I want to go somewhere so that I can leave lasting footprints when I'm gone. What is our life like? And then if you go back to the book of James, notice in verse 14... He does remind us that you and I are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. And he's simply reminding us, life is brief. Life is uncertain. Life is fragile. Life is a gift. And and so often we, again, just, and it's so easy to do. Hey, I, I do it too. We take days and sometimes weeks and sometimes months and maybe even tragically years for granted. And we can never get them back. That's why, I don't know why I'm sensitive to this, but every time I speak, whether it's in the mine, women's Bible study, small churches, in the auditorium on Sunday, I look out at the folks who are gathered there and I'm reminded, I think, by God, there will never be a gathering just like this ever again. You realize we could do the mine 
for 10,000 years and there will never be this exact combination of people in the mine ever again. Never. It just reminds us about every day is different. Every day is a gift. And God wants us to, in a sense, attack each day and unwrap that gift and live life to its fullest because once that 24 hours is gone, it's gone and we can never get it back. And we're a puff of smoke. See, that's not discouraging to me because I realize that for me, this life isn't what I'm living for anyway. I'm living for eternity. And One's life is not measured by how long they live, but by what they do while they're alive. Some people have packed more into life in 15 or 20 years than some people have in 100 because of the way they live their life. Because they ponder passages and verses like James chapter 4 and they think about life and what they're living for and where their life is going. And they, through Christ, change the trajectory of their life. Listen to these verses from Ecclesiastes and from the book of Job. Just as no one has power over the wind to restrain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. Since man's days are determined, the number of his months is under your control. You have set his limit and he cannot pass it. So here's what Moses writes in Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. I love that verse. Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. You see, I think from God's perspective, and I know from my perspective, the person who is prepared to die is also most prepared to live. The the person who is right with God is not going to sit around all through life thinking about the day of their death anyway. They're just going to soak up every day of life that God gives them as a gift and live life to the fullest. In fact, that's the way God wants us to live life. Some of you may not know this, but the Bible teaches us that God wants us to enjoy life, not endure life. Listen to what the wisest man who ever lived, according to the Bible, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes. I have concluded that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live and also that everyone should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil for these things are the gift from God. Those are pretty good verses, especially two days before Thanksgiving. So when you sit down to that big turkey dinner, don't feel bad about it. God wants you to enjoy life. He he understands... There's only so much on this side of heaven that, you know, brings people joy and whatever. So enjoy it. God wants you to enjoy life and and to take every day and live it as a gift. Always remembering life's fragile. Life's uncertain. Life is brief. Even if I live to be a hundred years old compared to eternity... As I say all the time, it's like a grain of sand on the seashore. It's nothing. Ten million years from now, when we've been in heaven for millions of years, this little span of time truly is going to seem like a vapor, a puff of smoke compared to our eternal existence. And, And I think, too, that 
James is implying in all this something that we really need as Christians, especially. Not to look at death, physical death, as some kind of punishment from God. I think even Christians like, yeah, I'm saved, my sins are forgiven, I have this wonderful life of grace, but I still got to die. And somehow death is this dreaded thing and all of this. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches our death physically is a promotion. It's graduation day. It's a release. In fact, Job even said, I will wait until my release comes. And the reason that death should not be viewed negatively or as some kind of punishment from God is because in order to enjoy eternity with God, in order to enjoy the glories of heaven, i got to lay this flesh and blood down. In fact, keep your finger there in James and go back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, great passage of scripture. Now this is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Let's just stop right there. If I want to enjoy the kingdom of God and all the glory of the kingdom of God, I got to get rid of this flesh and blood. Because God doesn't want me to just be part of his kingdom for as long as my flesh and blood can last. God wants me to be a part of his eternal kingdom that is forever and ever. And the way I do that, friends, is to lay this whole body down that's going to wear out eventually, going to get sick, going to get diseased, going to... I got to lay it down. That shouldn't be something that I dread. That should be something that I just say, hey, that's... That's my graduation day. That's when I'm released. Notice he goes on to say, Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Can I just tell you that would be a great verse over a nursery? We will not all sleep, but we will all be... Okay, anyway, bad joke. Okay, sorry. In a moment, in the blinking of an eye, at the last trumpet, some of you are just getting that now. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You see, even if I'm alive when Jesus comes, there's going to be a change that takes place. Because God can't take me to heaven as I am now. And I wouldn't want to go there as I am now. I want to go in a glorified body, my friends. I want to go in a body that will never suffer, never be sick, Never have any disease, no more death, nothing like that. I want to lay this body down and I want to get that glorified body. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on the immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? See, well, let me go on. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you fear bees, and yet the bee stinger's taken out, 
You don't need to be afraid of the bee anymore because the sting's gone. The stinger's gone. The, the thing that can hurt you has been taken out of the way. God is saying the same thing is true for the Christian about death. In a sense, Jesus took the stinger out of death. It, it doesn't have to sting anymore. I look at death a totally different way. And because I look, look at death a totally different way, hopefully I can look at life a totally different way. And I can get more out of life than anybody else around because I'm not living my life as if this life is all there is. And I'm not living my life one day worried about dying because when it does happen, I'm going to heaven with Jesus and I hope you are too. So notice the motivation then in verse 58. If all this is true and I truly believe it, then he says, so then dear brothers and sisters, be firm, do not be moved. Always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Get busy, serve, minister, live your life for Christ. Because one day when this old flesh and blood body is laying down and we are in heaven for millions of years, we're going to be glad we lived life the way we did. There's never going to be a regret one day of a Christian going, you know what, I wish I'd have lived more for the world and for me than for Jesus. That will never happen in heaven. It'll be just the opposite. All of us will be up there going, boy, I wish I wouldn't have lived for myself and the world so much and I wish I'd have lived for God more. That'll be the way heaven is. We'll never regret ever living for Christ even one day. No wonder then, Paul said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And the Old Testament book of Psalms says, in God's presence is fullness of joy. I mean, we can experience the joy of the Lord down here, but the Bible says the fullness of joy is only experienced when we are with Christ in heaven. Back to James as we wrap this up tonight. We come to verse 17 where James writes, so whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. If my life is going to include God and if I'm truly going to think about what I'm living for and what do I want out of life and How's God going to summarize my life? And how's others going to summarize my life? And what kind of footprints am I leaving behind with my life? Then one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to seize the opportunities that God gives me when they come. And, and notice here, it's not this vague, nebulous thing where, as a Christian, I don't know what God wants me to do. I spend all my life trying to figure it out. No, James says, when you know to do good, and the whole principle is, I don't have to go looking for opportunities as a Christian and searching for opportunities and digging for opportunities. If I'm on the same page with God, God will bring opportunities to do good to my doorstep. And listen, in this verse, God isn't saying it's up to us to meet every need in the world. That's not what this verse is saying. It's simply saying that you and I will know when God brings those opportunities to me and we will know this is an opportunity God wants me to seize. No, God doesn't want me to meet every need. God doesn't want you to meet every need. But God does want us to live by the Spirit to such a degree that we will be sensitive that when God brings these opportunities to our front door, we know, we know this is what God wants us to do. So then James says, it's not a matter of not knowing what God's will is and what God's opportunities he wants me to see. It's a matter of, am I going to do it or not? And James says, to those who know what they should be doing, and they're not, that's sin. The 
sad thing is, as Christians, and maybe this is, I, I even look back at my Christian upbringing and being brought up in churches, a lot of times sin was emphasized as what I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing. That's all you ever heard about. That's, that's how sin was defined. I, I'm, I'm stepping over a boundary that God has created and, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting involved in something I shouldn't have gotten involved in. And that's usually how we, we as Christians, that's, that's how we believe sin is. There's a whole other side, James says. There's not only sins of commission, there's sins of omission. That sin, even for me, is when I know God wants me to do something. And I say no to God. When I know God wants me to seize an opportunity to minister to someone, to, to encourage them, to, to get involved, to serve, to minister, to do this or that. And again, God doesn't want me to meet all the needs. God doesn't expect you and I to meet every need that we find out about. That's unrealistic. But God does expect us as his children to be walking with him to such a level that when those opportunities come and he places them in front of us, we can say, that's an opportunity God wants me to seize. And then the only question James says is, am I going to seize that opportunity or am I going to let it go? Listen to these verses. Here's one from the book of Hebrews. Through him, Jesus, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. From the book of Galatians, Paul writes, So we must not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of faith. Over and over again, the Bible simply reminds us, God will bring opportunities for us to do good into our lap. And then the only question is not, God, do you want me to do it or not? It's, will I do it or not? You see... I think a lot of times we, again, we're like that Alice in Wonderland character that's got a lot of motion but no direction. And a lot of Christians spin their wheels their whole life trying to figure out what God's will is for their life when God is simply saying, you're looking for something over here and I'm giving you this right here. And you keep looking in that direction and you're missing what I've got for you right in front of you. I mean, you read the Bible and... The people that were used by God are the people that saw people right in front of them that God brought into their life. And it was so obvious that while they may have looked, well, God, I want you to do this and I want you to give me this opportunity. that God's simply saying, but what about this person right in front of you right now? What are you going to do there? And a lot of times we're looking here and God says, what about this right here? What about this? Willie Loman is the central character in Arthur Miller's brilliant and moving play, Death of a Salesman. Willie Loman personifies failure and broken dreams as he spends his life chasing the ever-elusive dream of being an irresistibly successful salesman. He lives in denial, tossed back and forth between the notion that tomorrow will bring great success and the heart-wrenching desperation of feeling utterly worthless. He continually tortures himself with the belief that if he just tries harder, believes in himself more, persists long enough, he will find success. 
His biggest mistake is the belief that success will fulfill his deepest longings. If only Willie Loman could have found the courage to face the pain of failure and his emptiness, perhaps he might have realized that he was pursuing the wrong dream. In the end, he commits suicide. His son Biff comes to see the truth his dad could not face. There were a lot of nice days, his son says, when he'd come home from a trip or on Sundays making the stoop, finishing the cellar, putting on the new porch, you know, something. Charlie, there's more of him in that front stoop than in all the sales he ever made. And here's what his son says. He had the wrong dreams. All, all wrong. He never knew who he was. As a pastor for 25 years, I've met so many people like Willie Loman. They just think if they try harder, persist a little bit longer, as they chase that elusive wrong dream, somehow it's going to get better. And the sad thing is, it never comes down to them to ponder the questions of James in chapter 4. What's my life like? What am I living for? Where am I headed? What do I want people to say about my life after I'm dead and gone? You see, I believe that if we find our identity in Christ and we center our life in Christ and we include God in our lives, that we will have a very clear direction and dream for our life. Listen to these verses. First, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a man who knew where he was going and who he was. He also says to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, I haven't arrived yet, but I'm single-minded I'm forgetting those things that are behind. I'm reaching forth towards those things that are ahead of me. And I am pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's a man who knew who he was and where he was headed in life. You see, one of the great things about knowing Jesus is not just that my sins are forgiven and I'm on my way to heaven. The great thing about knowing Jesus is it actually really does give a plan and purpose to my life. It actually gives direction in my life. And if I don't like where my life is going or where it's been through Christ, I can always change it because anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. Folks, I want to leave you with this. I hope you realize how special you are to me, each and every one of you that come out on Tuesday night. And I want to remind you, God really loves you. Um, I got five minutes. I can do this. The irony of God, this coming Sunday when I speak here for five services on Sunday will be the fifth anniversary of me resigning from my church in New York. And when I resigned from that church in New York, it was very painful. I'm not going to go into a big, long, sordid story, but let's just say that um, it got pretty ugly. And I felt that I, for the sake of my family and for me, I, I needed to resign and get out of that very toxic environment. 
It was so bad that my family and I all said, I will never be in the ministry ever again. I will never pastor. I will never teach the Bible ever again. It's just too painful. And God began to do a healing in our family and in each of our lives. And obviously, sitting here now, you know that God did a wonderful work in our lives to the point where we were willing to get back into the ministry. And Cornerstone called three years ago, and we said yes to that call, and I'm so glad I did. But when I say that you all are an unbelievable encouragement to me, you will never know. And to be where I'm at now, to be able to teach you folks every week, and to know where I was just five years ago, and even though God has brought healing in my life from that, Obviously, like all of us, when we go through things like that, the scars never leave us of those things, and the pain is always there. But that's not what defines my life. You see, one of the reasons why I encourage all of you to never let anyone else define who you are and what you will become except God is because that's what a group of people in New York were trying to do with me. They were trying to define who Jeff Royce was and what God wanted to do with Jeff Royce. And a very valuable lesson I learned through that very painful time in my life is I just need to let God define who I am and what I become. No other human being. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to know tonight as you leave here just how much God loves you. Folks, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If... If... If God had a wallet, your photo would be in it. God loves you that much. And I love you too. Thank you so much. Let's close in prayer. God, I I just pray tonight that as we leave this place tonight that we've talked about some heavy stuff tonight. James does. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't pass over anything. He talks about the most important things that life could, could offer or that life is because he understands, as God understands, that we really do need to every once in a while think about these things, ponder these things, reason these things, and allow you to be included in each and everything that we do. God, I pray tonight, and this may be a a bold prayer, but Lord, I believe you teach us to pray boldly, that I pray tonight that every person who's been here tonight, that our life would be just a little bit differently lived by being here tonight than if we would not have set foot in this place tonight. That in some way, whether it's the, the, what we do tomorrow even, or the rest of this holiday week through Thanksgiving, or, or the rest of this month, or the rest of this year, or even in the next year, that, that somehow our life would be lived a little bit differently because we were here tonight. God, I just want to pray that each of us, that would be true in our lives. God, would you help us if that's a desire of ours? to just seize the opportunities that you give us 
and to leave lasting footprints behind. Thank you, God, for how great and good you are to us. Thank you for loving us so very much. And Lord, would you just bless these folks out of their minds and impress upon them just not only how much you love them, but how much I love them too. Thank you, Lord, for them in my life. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, have a great Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. See you here next Tuesday.